0: Thank <laughs>
1: gentlemen and other fellow humans welcome back to discovery debrief a podcast setting a course to discuss the future of the final frontier in star trek strange new worlds discovery lower decks and more i'm co-host chris clow and i'm joined by one other member of our bold panel of star trek franchise explorers and the best student of the group with the worst grades cicero holmes
2: the gorn mostly come out at night (laughs) mostly (laughs)
1: <laughs> there's some parallels maybe to uh to talk about with that and uh we're also very pleased to be joined once more by a great debrief friend and our resident Expertise cultural archaeologist mr kyle sullivan kyle
3: hello how's it going out there in colonial williamsburg i think we have an alien invasion on
1: our hands yeah that uh, we're, this, oh man there's there's a lot to talk about here uh this is gonna be an interesting one but uh You know, it's, it's funny just because I feel like this season just started. Honestly, these, like, I understand the, uh, the financial judiciousness of doing 10 episode seasons and maybe the general quality that at least I think strange new worlds has had is because they're not overloading us with episodes, but it seems weird to me that we're already done with season two. And man, we have no idea when the next one is coming. We're no clue as of right now. And that's a particularly painful fact, which we will get to at the end of our discussion. But, uh, as usual, you know we like to do our panel check-ins with people. Uh, Cicero is the only regular who is joining us right now. Rachel should join us a little bit later. But my friend, how are you? What have you been up to in the world of Trek or elsewhere?
2: Uh, I am doing well. Uh, let's see. I guess since the last since last we spoke, uh, I think I ran into a friend of the show, former guest, and uh co-host of the reengage podcast great tito oh okay over cool. in uh gen con and um and uh he's he says hello and he says his greetings so so that is that is a Star Trek thing that I did um I don't think there's anything else that I have done except for maybe listen to the ballad of Bilbo Baggins
1: <laughs> classic what 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 prompted that
2: uh hey, hey, you know when when the mood hits you you just you just gotta you gotta listen to some nimoy and and watch some go-go dancing
3: oh my God. Uh,
2: as you talk about bilbo baggins
3: i want someone to remake that to whale song i think that'd be appropriate ooh,
1: uh, hey there you go just, that's ooh, something that jam.
2: that artificial ballad, make it make it really the ballad of bilbo baggins yeah mm, that's funny <laughs> Uh, That's awesome, solo with Frodo. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I Kyle, what have you been up to maybe. over the last week or so? And have you uh, made any additional forays into bad Star Trek novels? Or what have you been up to?
3: I haven't. I haven't. I'm. I'm. We're reading a uh, internet linguistics book. I watched uh, Oppenheimer, which I'm more oh, than disappointed wow. with. Really? Uh, really? Okay. Wow. Yeah, I, I think. I think Christopher Nolan's at war with good sound design. <laughs> just
2: <laughs>
3: <clears throat> that movie would loud, not be quiet. You know loud
2: is loud is good, man. Loud is good. Yeah, but three hours
3: allowed. You want to <laughs> like use your loud judiciously. Like I get the bomb. anyway. I watched it. I appreciate that it exists. Um uh but I am in theory gonna be on a zoom call with the Mr. uh Doug Drexler tomorrow. Whoa. I know. Yeah. And it's a producer friend of mine uh, who's setting it up for a completely different project, non-truck related stuff, but I'm sure it'll come up a little bit.
1: He wrote, he he helped with the Bible that I read underneath my covers every night. Uh, he yeah. A lot of, I mean, lots of contributions to that encyclopedia in addition to all of the work that he did on the franchise.
3: It's Roddenberry, it's Okuda's, it's Drexler, you know, it's Sternback. It's like, those are the names that really are the heartbeat of the franchise.
1: That's incredible. Well, I hope you can contain yourself because I'll, be, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. Yeah. yeah you don't, yeah. you said you don't get starstruck very easily no. and I can understand that. Uh, yeah. No,
3: but I am going to ask him if he has a runabout I can borrow. I've got a thing to take care of on Bejor.
1: He'll <laughs> <I don't> understand. <laughs> don't we all? I think a lot of people could use some spring wine after this week, right? He's, yeah. a, uh,
2: he's a Suffolk County kid. Oh, tell, easy. so yeah yeah tell' them, tell them that the your your podcast and co-host is from Nassau Nassau county ah okay oh, this, is, this, is a, this is a little long island talk it's a little <laughs> long island talk, so you guys talk amongst yourselves
3: <laughs> so i'm I'm gonna tell them Suffolk County says hello
2: right yeah 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 <laughs> Nassau, Nassau county says hello Nassau county little, says hello all right yeah, you get it. a little bagel a little bagel with some schmear. that's uh, <laughs> a
1: beautiful country.
2: It's funny, you mentioned the sound
1: design for for Oppenheimer, and it's really like, Nolan, from what I understand anyway, he's had this very, it seems kind of standoffish when people ask him about his choices with sound design, because he says it's not necessarily about understanding what people say as much as the way they say things makes you feel, Uh -uh. and... Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying I agree with that by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. Um, I remember going to the prologue for The Dark Knight Rises about six months or so before the movie opened. And uh, you could not understand Bane. This was the sequence where Bane actually like goes into a plane and destroys it and tries to kidnap somebody. Mm. And, well, succeeds. And the dialogue could not re- – like it was just very muffled. It was interesting. But that's something that was changed between the initial release of that prologue and the final version of the movie. Mm-hmm. It didn't bother me as much on Dunkirk because it didn't really seem like it was as much about the dialogue. But then like Tenet, was, there were a lot of barriers to to mm-hmm. sort of being with the flow of that story. And I didn't have as many issues with Oppenheimer, but I can totally see how people would. Uh, because of his predilection for muffling spoken words, which I just said, yeah. I don't, I don't I, get
3: the, the big secret about filmmaking is that sound is 51% of the picture. And if you, if you're going to peel off in that direction, like that's cool. Do your thing. You know, he, he edited Oppenheimer the same way he edited Dunkirk, a movie i really love. And uh, Tenet was edited the same with this sort of like nonlinear frenetic thing. And like, he's, he's a guy who likes to play with the timeline That's him. That's his motif. He's like Tarantino. This is the movie he's going to make every time. But at some point, you're going to start alienating people. And man, I walked in completely open. Nolan doing a biopic? Let me play with that. I I was very disappointed. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of people liked it, and it's made like $600 million. But I'm going to need Nolan to, to try something a little different. Because if he keeps muffling the sound, he might as well do like a silent film. In fact, when when I'm serious, when Oppenheimer comes out on streaming, I'm going to turn the sound off and the captions on, and see if it's a different vibe. I think it might be.
1: Watch Oppenheimer like you watch a Buster Keaton movie, right? Yeah, yeah.
3: Yeah, You know, who knows? Maybe that's what he means means for us to do because I didn't enjoy listening to
1: it. (laughs) Yeah, especially for someone who seems to embrace a lot of like emerging uh, technologies, like he's all about like high dynamic range picture. He's about spatial audio that usually comes in the form of like Dolby Atmos. But yeah, it is it, the way that he uses those tools are uh, unique. I'll put yeah. it that way. But yeah, let's see but him do a rom-com.
3: That's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. so the, the, the Barbenheimer thing happened. And so like Greta Gerwig, in my opinion, is a better filmmaker on adaptability grounds because she did like this re this remake this masterful remake of little woman and then turns around and does this incredibly rompous like satire barbie and like they both fucking work you know and like nolan he's using the same editing paradigm for multiple movies i'm i'm not sure he's gonna get the same narrative flow every time you know like a, a biopic about oppenheimer even with the bomb like i don't know man this should have been a, more than two quiet moments to brace for the bomb and i just i i I don't know no one's in a spot where people aren't telling him no so i don't know what's happening there
1: yeah that's i think that's a really good and keen observation is that i mean warner brothers effectively gave him carte blanche after he turned in billion dollar blockbusters with his latter two batman films and then he was able to make those movies and then they pissed him off so he left and universal was like come over here do whatever you want and here his war
3: on sound design continues. Anyway, I, I really love Dunkirk and Memento is a personal favorite. So sure, he's yeah. he yeah. is good. He just he needs to fix what he's doing just a little bit, and he'll be golden.
1: Little war on linearity, maybe. Um,
3: he hates <laughs> a timeline, doesn't he? <laughs> Although,
1: arguably, his most linear movie is probably my favorite, which is you know, I'm a nerd, so it's The Dark Knight. I mean, that movie mm-hmm. was a transcendent cinematic experience for me um, for multiple reasons, not just because of. A, a really, you know, kinetic and crazy performance from a performer who's no longer around, but the direction yeah. too. like there was such a reality that was applied to this world that I've been immersed in for so long that uh, just, I mean, I, I, I have, yet, it seems like the best comic book movies, at least in my estimation, they must come in intervals of 30 years because in 78, you had Richard Donner that did Superman and no one did it better. And then in 2008, you got The Dark Knight. And that's the only one, in my estimation, that has managed to hit those kinds of highs. So by 2038, who knows what we'll get.
3: Wait, wait, hold on. So what do you gentlemen... How do you feel about the 1989 Batman? Oh, I love it. That's, that's my Batman, I True. think. Yeah.
2: So uh, The Dark Knight, the,
3: Knight is vastly superior to that, or a little bit superior to Not that? to me.
2: Not to me. That's, that's Chris's. Ah. Chris's take. When it comes to
1: fidelity to the guy that i have been reading for most of my life then dark knight wins rather handily when it comes to the adaptive philosophy of the predominant version of the character that's been persistent since the 70s mm-hmm. uh like post adam west when the comics sort of reinvented batman and took him in a, a not as dark as he was in the 30s but closer to that Mm-hmm. So, but in the thirties he shot people. And in the seventies, he, his rule against killing was well established, yeah. but the 89 movie, I mean, just the vision of it is unparalleled. Anton first is a production designer. Uh, that man was brilliant and mm-hmm. he was clearly a tortured, uh, brilliance, but, um, that's that's to me like the biggest value that i probably extract from that movie not only was it just an event it was technically the first movie i ever saw even though i don't remember it at a oh. drive-in in bakersfield california when i was 18 months old but uh my parents told me that i was like ha- i had my head out the window watching batman which might explain some dreams now but um <laughs> like it's a very like it's it's an, an it's a fascinating movie and it's arguably the most fascinating Batman movie. Um, yeah. But in terms of like recognizing the guy that I know and getting to the spirit of hope from darkness, the last place that you look for hope, that's Batman to me. And it was exemplified at The Dark Knight. And Matt Reeves did a good job with it too. Hmm. So, but I'll, that's Batman debrief. You know. Yeah. Batman yeah. debrief. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. man. Yeah. Sorry. No, that's OK. That, but no, you're, you're in good company. I mean, if you like the 89 movie, it's a great movie. And it's a yeah. fun movie to watch. Yeah. But we are here to talk about Star Trek. So apologies for the- What? Are we? Uh, what? <laughs> are we? <laughs> Welcome to Discovery. Uh, are we here to talk about Batman?
3: <laughs> Swear to me. Sorry. sorry, sorry, sorry.
1: <laughs> yeah, that, that's a little bit of a shortcoming in those movies. Yeah. yeah. Little, yeah. <laughs> um, and Kevin Conroy made fun of that, which was kind of brilliant. God rest his soul. But um, let's move on to our discussion of Star Trek: Strange New Worlds season two, episode ten, and the season finale,
0: Hegemony. The
1: episode takes its title from the uh, from the Gorn Hegemony, the system of, I guess you could call it, government that that governs uh, Gorn society um we haven't really seen a whole lot of uh the i guess the political side of things play out between the federation and the gorn hegemony i guess the hegemony was mentioned in prodigy in episodes i have not seen yet um so i'm looking forward to that but we are getting a very unique look pre-arena at what's going on between the federation and the gorn in strange new worlds so let's dive in with the first part of the plot so Captain Battelle's ship, the USS Cayuga is ambushed by the Gorn while resupplying the human colony Parnassus beta nurse chapel is aboard the Cayuga en route to her fellowship and survives the attack. There's a lot that happened here in this intro. I guess the first thing that I kind of wanted to bring up was more on like the production side of things. So the colony on Parnassus beta made judicious use of a backlot in Ontario That was originally constructed for the Reacher show that was uh, streamed on Amazon Prime. But it seemed like the story kind of had to contrive a bit to align with the look of the set. But what do you guys make of this? Is this creative use of an existing structure? Did you find it distracting? Like that it's so narrow. Like Star Trek has done this a lot in the past, certainly. But like, let's make a Midwestern town on an a call. Like, how did this strike you guys? Kyle, you're kind of shaking your head.
3: Uh, hence my colonial Williamsburg comment at the top. Um, <laughs> yes. Because as soon as we land there, it's was like, really? Is there someone pining for the Midwest in space? I, it is both a homage to the way Star Trek was in the 60s. But at the same time, it was a little, <laughs> a little bit, I'm just like, what?
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean
3: you got to set the show somewhere
2: I guess.
1: Yeah, I suppose Cicero did were you along for the ride or did you find this distracting?
2: Uh I didn't I didn't find it distracting. I found it uh giggle-worthy giggle maybe. <laughs> um and uh yeah, I mean they were throw they threw locations at a dartboard, right? Like is location and time periods ambiguous. <laughs> all right. All right. Yeah, there we go. Boom. I wonder if it's
1: less expensive for them to do this kind of location shooting. Like, you know, we saw the episode, the time travel episode that took place in Toronto, and then they're using these pre-existing structures uh, that are contemporary by our standards. But um, yeah, I don't know. I guess I just kind of felt like it took me out of it a little bit because it just seemed so odd. You know, it's not like the... Granted, you know, thankfully, it's not the recreation of Nazi Germany that we saw in Patterns of Force, uh, nor is it uh, like a recreation of 30 Chicago like we saw in a piece of the action. <sighs> um, <laughs> but uh, but it, it did seem a little weird. But thankfully, it's a relatively small part. I guess it's just it might be kind of funny if someone walked onto the set and didn't know what show it was. You're like, what is this? Is this is Walking Dead
2: right uh, if they're
1: shooting here and they would have to look you know at the at uniforms and phasers to to figure out that it was actually a star trek show
2: <laughs> well um, i mean the, i mean the, the one thing chris that I, I will say is that uh we we talked about it at the at the top of the show and we're going to talk about it you know kind of to close it out but with 10 episodes essentially they're making 10 movies right the the the, the quality of the the acting the writing the production is is cinema esque, right? Maybe it's not quite top-of-the-line blockbuster, but but the you know, they're expensive. So any place that you can uh find a way to cut some corners, right? Mm-hmm. You find a way to cut some corners. And and if that means that I've got to use reuse some goofy set and come up with some contrivance for why we're there, um then, then we go ahead and do it because in the and you know, at the end of the day. Who cares? Yeah. Right? Like, it's, it's just the thing that moves the plot, plot along.
3: Yeah. Like the quarry in Toronto uh, right, that showed right. up on Discovery multiple times. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. And they, they, I mean, they also did it with Enterprise sets in this episode, too, which we'll get yeah. to. Um, but no, it's, it's just, just kind of, kind of a, an interesting little wrinkle and a strange quasi nod to, to Star Trek's history. Well, uh,
3: the finale for season three will take place in a 1980s shopping mall. That's a reuse of a Stranger Things episode. So.
1: <laughs> there you go. Or go to Monroeville and and throw us a little bit of a uh, an homage to the late George A. Romero. Why not, right? Or, yeah. <clears throat> Which is, I I love that movie. It grosses me out to no end. But oh man, like that's probably my favorite horror movie. Just as an aside, but um. So uh, the Gorn are back in strange new worlds and they're back for the first time since all those who wander, which was the penultimate first season episode that saw the death of Hemmer. Um, we got a very slight allusion to the Gorn back in the season, second season premiere. And I guess I'm just curious about how you guys feel about the build for their reappearance here, because you know, I think some shows might make the mistake of showing them too much or too little. Uh, You could argue that maybe we've seen them too little, but just in terms of the build and what was established about the threat of the Gorn as we've seen them in this show, how has the build been to this episode in particular? Cicero?
2: Oh, well, I mean, so they're sentient xenomorphs. So that's, that's pretty scary if not derivative, but, but scary with pressure suits um, yeah yeah right right you know i mean so like um that's it's the threat was definitely real um and it and it felt it felt earned uh i don't know that i well i mean look what we saw of the gorn back, you know 60 years ago uh is is a far cry from the thing that we're getting today and the thing that we, that we're getting today is objectively better and more realistic than the thing that we got 60 years ago. But the, you know, but the budgets relative to each other are like, you know, lean so heavily on, on the side of strange new worlds that, that, uh, that it's below beneath the floor that scale. So uh, like, I get it. This is, this was the choice that they, they went with. They leaned very heavily into, uh, James Cameron territory and, and they, you know, and they, they steered into the swerve, right? Like they steered into the skid when it came to that. Mm -hmm. And I look, if I, if I'm going to fault them for it, then I'm going to hate the episode and I don't want to hate the episode. So that's the choice you made. I'll ride with it.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, Kyle, in terms of just like setting up the the impact and the drama of the return of the Gorn, uh, too much for this season, too little, just right, where where do you fall?
3: I think it's I think it's good. Um they we're not overplaying them. They show up once a season right now, and that's fine. And uh Lon talks about them occasionally outside of a Gorn episode, and so that's enough to really establish who they are, which Cicero is saying is very much uh, a- abrasive to what we saw in the 1960s. I, I'm i having a hard time reconciling that. I, I I like what we're getting, but I'm like, part of me is like, Kyle, you're going to have to figure out your headcanon for this. Is it a subspecies? <laughs> <clears throat> I, I'd like to propose to any writer that might be listening, that you have a really great opportunity to combine Laon's Gorn storyline and La'an's Khan storyline and make a time travel episode where Khan is using the Gorn to run the planet Earth because lizard people really do run the world. And I think it'd be kind of neat to play on that.
0: <laughs>
3: yeah. No, I think they're cool. Like the moment on the bridge when the tail swoops down, I'm just like, now yeah. that's
1: that worked for me. That was really cool.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And I guess uh I only saw bits and pieces, but real puppets on set, like very detailed. Mm. going on which seems like it's a lost art these days but right. those are pretty convincing creature effects mm-hmm. i guess one of the things that i just think of is that you know since i am so tos embedded i suppose i don't really have difficulty reconciling arena with what we're seeing here in the sense that stranger worlds has already seemed to make pretty clear that Events are in canon. Aesthetics aren't necessarily right. um yeah. And you know, as a com- we've talked about this before, as a comic book fan, that's something I can roll with pretty easily. But um the spirit, I guess, is what I'm most interested in. And watching Arena is actually kind of a fraught watching experience. But at least before you see the Gorn captain for the first time, because you know the the base on Cestus Three is destroyed and people are are hurt and displaced and there's a lot of uh uh, just a lot of tension that seems to to define the interaction between the gorn in that episode and the crew of the enterprise so spiritually it feels like it's descended which i can get on board with um i guess i probably would like to see a little bit more because to me the thing that i naturally go to uh for good or for ill is like well how do how do the relations work exactly i would actually like to see some and this is just a nerd thing you know no one cares but it's like some 23rd century context for the way the diplomacy is supposed to operate and we were too soon like that's really something that should take place after arena and there's a chance i suppose based on things that have been said by akiva goldsman and other people in the show that Depending on how long Strange New Worlds goes, it is going to overlap with TOS. So, we are conceivably, potentially, going to get future uh, adventures during Kirk's five year mission in this show. Oh, I think that's cool.
3: No, I think that'd be really cool.
1: Yeah, I do too. I mean, there's a lot that we didn't see, you know, there's conceivably even if you take the animated series into account, all things considered, uh, there's like two unaccounted years and they don't necessarily have to be successive, but there's a lot of unaccounted time in that five-year mission, especially when you get on the, like near the end of it and you start to transition more closely to the motion picture. I think there's room to tell stories there, but Mm -hmm. that's a whole other thing. So let's move along (laughs) with the plot. Um, The Enterprise arrives to find the wreckage of the Cayuga and a Gorn device jamming communications and transporters. The Gorn have transmitted a demarcation line between the Enterprise and the colony, and Admiral April orders them not to cross into Gorn-claimed space, but Pike secretly leads Ortegas, La'an, Mbenga, and Sam Kirk to the surface. Uh, So this whole sequence begins with some pretty fancy flying from eric ortegas but we also get to see pike and the team kind of in strike mode making their way through the colony and there's windows broken and there's blood smeared on the walls and it seems like they are trying to hit the horror angle a little hard even though we don't really see the gorn in the colony all that much how does that work cicero you uh you know you made an alien joke to start this whole thing off um do you feel like the tension was effectively carried through when the landing party got to the
2: surface Sure. Because, you know, we didn't know what was going to happen. Right. Like, uh, um, you know, were we going to have this like a face off with with the Gorn or, you know, were they were they going to walk into an ambush? Um, you just didn't know what was going to happen. So uh, I was yeah, I was, again, there for the ride to see where we're where we're going to go with uh, with the Gorn. And, uh, you know, and, and like La'an being kind of the, the focal point again is, is cool for the season. Mm -hmm.
1: Sure. Kyle, when you watch something like this, I guess I'm curious about, uh, the way that you look at it, because I would imagine that from a professional perspective, you might be looking at it in a mechanical sense. But as a fan, you're also looking at it and getting engrossed in the drama. How does that, when it comes to like this, these sequences where they first get into the, into the colony, um, do you feel like they effectively sort of exemplified the horror that they were going for? Were you able to maybe put the professional critiquing aside while you were watching it or does it come together differently for you?
3: Uh, if it's good, then I'll put the technical thing down. If I get engrossed watching a thing, I won't, if I'm thinking about your lighting, you screwed up. (laughs) (laughs) And this is, uh, I mean, it was perfectly serviceable. Like I didn't, I wasn't thinking about anything technical. Like, like the shuttle ride was fun. Uh, you know, the she was just grinning like a Cheshire cat piloting the shuttlecraft. And like it, it, when you have good characters, like you don't notice technical details, I think. And like I thought it worked. You know, they were setting it up a bit like a horror movie. I I guess I just turned my brain off at that point. I was just sort of like, all right, serious situation, dramatic situation. Let's see where it goes. and No one's going to die. <laughs>
1: um,
3: yeah, I don't know. I, I wasn't thinking technical at all. That does that does happen sometimes, but uh, I try to turn that off if I if I can for Trek.
1: Happened in Picard season two, maybe.
2: Yeah, <laughs> oh, gosh, oh, and
3: I, and I'll tell you something. Like I wanted to bring this up before because I have seen less of it on uh, Strange New Worlds and season two of Strange New Worlds. But like some of the camera movement that's indicative of Discovery and Picard, like. And I'm not talking about the wild and crazy swirls, like when you're entering a scene and you're spinning around like you're in space or something. I'm talking about like basic conversations. When, you, when you're when you moving a camera side by side, uh, just a little bit of movement one way or the other while people are talking, shot, reverse shot. I, I think that is like, and if you're a DP working on the show, listen very carefully. It's a sign of cowardice. And it's in the show Bible for discovery that they have to do it that way now. So anybody who comes along has to replicate that. But like Stranger Worlds has pulled back on that quite a bit. And they've had really strong characters that allow them to breathe. So like, you know, it's a, it's a story thing. It's a character thing. And if you, if you're really good on the page, like I'm not going to notice where your lights are, where your, where your camera is moving most of the time, Mm -hmm. um, and just, you know, Strange new Worlds has not done that weird filler move, that side to side tracking move, nearly as often as Discovery has done. And you know, someone behind the scenes is thinking about that. But I, I wasn't even thinking about that watching this. Like it was exciting enough. You know, I wasn't really looking at the technical stuff.
1: Yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned that. Just because I I, I don't think in the moment, like watching the first two seasons of Discovery, for instance, I'd necessarily zeroed in on that, but it does seem like it adds a little bit more to unnecessarily keep track of just as a viewer while the camera is sort of panning while someone is talking. It's not a problem that like the West Wing had where they, the characters were moving. So naturally the camera moved with them. Yeah. But yeah, it is It is kind of strange. that it, they it, It's a very that.
3: subtle thing. Cam- the camera is supposed to help you tell the story and there's no one way to do that. And I think for Discovery that they really wanted to do like a blockbuster action movie kind of vibe. And so like for that, the camera's moving all the time for American stuff. And I think that in their show Bible, they're just like, make sure if you're still doing a conversation, we're going to fire you. <laughs> <laughs> but but they've slowed down quite like Strange New Worlds, despite having sort of the same lighting in the same like, you know, production and physical props and like bridges and spaces. Like the camera work is uh, very different and uh, it, it, it's much more cinematic. It's much more aligned with story. I definitely noticed that, but that is a, a hallmark of the show so far. So for this episode, it's been par for the course.
1: Sure. Yeah. Great. Well, um, I wanted to ask you guys about crate 32, um, which Pike had securely beamed into the ready room and which was packed to the gills with, anti-gorn weaponry uh i mean it was a cool moment and and to me it was kind of reminiscent of the of weapons that starfleet has developed in the future for threats like the borg and the dominion you know we always got a hint of some sort of specialized tactical weapon system that was designed to to take on these emerging existential threats to the federation but it's also a little disconcerting you know it's it's like the weapons also especially like when you compare to the appearance of the gorn in uh the penultimate episode of last season like they were uh, a force to be reckoned with and you could not even be seen by a gorn child lest you threaten death right but now there are these weapons and you can dispatch gorn uh adult Gorn uh you know with just the the shot of one of these phasers so it seemed like it was a little deus ex machina compared with the buildup that the Gorn have had throughout the series but how does this sequence strike you guys just from from two perspectives one from a practical storytelling perspective uh for us as people in the real world but also just as like in universe the the threat that the Federation seems to be taking stock of when it comes to the Gorn. Uh, Cicero.
2: Well, I mean, I think this falls in line with lots of other uh, action movie tropes, right? Where in the sequel, uh, you've learned how to fight the enemy a little bit better. So when, uh, you know, the first time around, you were ignorant to, uh, what their processes were, their the the foot soldiers were, were challenging. And now that you've you've gained some experience and you understand that uh, they're more than just a myth, um, they're they're actually real. You're you're building weapons and techniques and and uh, procedures to to attack them, right, or to at least defend yourself against them. So, um, you know, by by that very nature, you're going to be able to deal with and handle um more serious threats or at least you should be able to otherwise you're screwed so i mean that made sense to me
1: mm-hmm. in terms of just the storytelling for it were, were you uh i guess satisfied with the idea that oh well i mean hammer died and you know we had this giant threat and phasers didn't work but now they have the weapons that can actually
2: handle the gorn Sure. I mean, you know, they they have they've got the federation's best scientists working on, you know, working on the uh a a uh, a weapon of uh mass protection <laughs> against against the Gorn. Um so yeah, why why not? I mean, it's been it's been a while since Hemmer died. Um I I could imagine that uh if if this was one of your biggest priorities across the the military base you know of course across your entire military arm um then you guys would come up with something you know uh, not relatively easily but but rather quickly and and i think they did sure
1: uh kyle starfleet's military bona fides so to speak have been pretty well established in like 24th century stories. You know, we saw whether it was between section 31 or, or developments of anti Borg weaponry or the creation of the defiant, you know, we definitely see that Starfleet has a a highly tactical pedigree when they want to use it, but they also seem to uh, de-emphasize it a lot when you saw this uh moment in the you know the creation of these anti-gorn weapons like, did any of that stuff sort of come into your mind about just like the militarism of of Starfleet and how it's making more of a presence felt in strange new worlds now?
3: Uh not any more than normal. I think that uh you know we we've established that Starfleet can do some rough and tumble military things way back with the Mako's on there you Star go. Trek cool. Enterprise. Um You know, this was sort of part and parcel of that. I didn't really think of the Makos at the moment. Crate 32 makes me wonder what's in Crate 47, though. Yeah. Yeah. And and Cicero, you were just talking about how, like, you know, this is the sequel. We've met the enemy. Now we know something about him, and now we're doing some research. And and that makes sense as an organization. Uh, But it makes me wonder, like, maybe there are other uh, uh, versions of the Gorn out there, not just the one that, like, Kirk will fight, but maybe like somebody like that. Oh, I guess you guys, you guys can't click on that. King, uh, King R King K rule from Donkey Kong country. Oh, like yeah, big right. fat lizard with a crown on him mm. uh, sitting back on the
1: Gorn home world. That would be kind of amazing. <laughs> well,
2: yeah. I mean, you know, that section 31 is, uh, they're definitely working on, on something. They've got more Intel.
3: They've got more Intel. I, I, it, it didn't seem too militaristic. It, what it was to me was just an indication that Starfleet was taking these guys seriously. And an indication to us as the audience that, oh, no, these are serious lizards. Way more than the silly lizards. They're serious lizards.
1: <laughs> There's serious. a shirt right there. Serious yeah. lizards. <laughs> these I are like
3: serious it. lizards.
1: Yeah, mm. I... Um, I don't. I don't disagree with anything either of you guys have, have said. And yeah, I mean, if you want to go back to the enterprise era, Mako, you know, we actually got some interesting context for Mako and Star Trek Beyond that I think would be yeah. generally applicable to the prime timeline. Um, and uh, but I guess on this show, what was interesting to me about the the pulling out of of that crate was that. I think under normal circumstances, Pike might chafe at something like that, but because of the people involved, like it's his idea, he brings it forward, he's ready to take them down and isn't going to let anything get in his way. And uh, it seemed maybe a little selective, but considering what we know about Starfleet's response to future threats, particularly the Borg, but also something like the Dominion, uh, certainly makes sense. And I think that there is some gaps that could be filled in when it comes to like that, that military readiness from the forthcoming section 31 movie presuming that it takes place in the 23rd century which i don't think we know Hell so enough. there's a, there's a little, i certainly wouldn't mind seeing like the transition from an apparently endorsed section subsection of starfleet intelligence to what they become in ds9 as this disavowed black ops entity that is technically within the fold of the federation but is also you know they don't answer to anybody as dr Bashir pointed out
3: the the, section 31 may have been foiled by the writer's strike if we're being honest here (laughs) uh i just had this thought about like what's what else is in the crate right i'm thinking like there's like a sticky trap You know, (laughs) so the lizard crawls against the wall. It gets stuck on the sticky trap. That would have (laughs) totally
1: worked, man. Oh, totally. No, I mean, you never know what kinds of things that these people are going to need to dream up to take on these kinds of threats. But it was an interesting sort of foreshadow for what we know gets established later on. But Mm -hmm. uh, you know, retcon is foreshadow is probably not even the appropriate term to describe this. But oh well, that's let's get pedantic later on. Um let's move along with the plot. So the landing party finds Captain Batel and other survivors including a Starfleet engineer, a young lieutenant or lieutenant junior grade named Montgomery Scott, who has built a cloaking device to hide from the Gorn. And also shortly thereafter Captain Pike learns that Captain Batel has been infected with Gorn eggs which is the same fate that befell Femmer. Femmer. Hemmer. Ugh, can't even talk. Well, uh, before we get to the character debut, let's talk about the infection of Captain Patel, because I think you guys at different points were all joking about how her days were likely numbered. I uh, think over the last couple of weeks, that's a joke that emerged from several different panelists. Um, but it would certainly seem to indicate that she's got some problems you know being infected with corn eggs but considering how the show has built up her relationship with captain pike and now this development how are we feeling about where season two has positioned captain patel just as a character in her own right uh cicero
2: well i mean so in this way they are much like discovery where um they have Established backstory for a character for a tertiary character so that we care when they kill them off. right Now we we've we've kind of known this fate, right we we've known that that uh, that Pike's not with Patel at, at you know by the time we get to uh, the cage, but like we don't know what what had transpired. Or when when those those moments actually occurred. So now they're you know, now they're filling that stuff in. Um it is what it is. You know? It is what it is.
1: All right. Kyle, what do you make of the use of Captain Patel this season and how she has landed in the season finale?
3: I think in terms of being infected by Gorneg, she should have not been a fool and raptor tool. You know, you gotta be you gotta practice safe. Safe Gorn interaction if you <laughs> – Gorn, they're lizards, man. You're going to get a disease. Listen, I I think it's obvious. I think Cicero is right. I think, you know, we know what happens to Captain Pike. He's a, a b- bee-boop chair enthusiast. And um, <laughs> <laughs> I think that uh, Patel's days are numbered, man. She's Gorn food.
1: You think so? You think they? I guys- mean, they
3: probably won't kill her this time. Maybe, maybe. I don't. I don't know, man. Some of the, you know, you introduce a character that we're not attached to as a prequel to TOS, like, e-
1: e- yeah, like it's, it's sort of like watching Better Call Saul, right? I mean, yeah. people could probably figure out who who was going to be alive at the end of that and who wasn't. Um, yeah, that was uh, oh, Howard. Uh, <laughs> Rachel has joined us. Hi
3: Hello. Rachel. Hello, Hi. Rachel.
0: Don't spoil Better Call Saul for people. Yeah,
3: me either. I haven't seen the last season.
0: Chris? Shit.
3: <laughs> no, no. I, I haven't. I, I'm clean. I don't. I didn't get spoiled. You're good.
1: Okay. All right. All right. All right. All right. Cool. Uh. Well. Anyway, Rachel. Yes. Welcome. Thank you. What do you make of the way that Captain Patel has been positioned this season, uh, and how her fate has seemingly been laid out here? Yeah.
0: I mean, I. I don't think she's gonna make it. Uh, okay. Because uh, Daisy.
1: Why is she screaming so much?
0: Because she also
3: thinks that Patel is dead.
0: Right. <laughs> she's like Patel deserved better. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just I feel like the problem with the prequels having a prequel is that some people have a ridiculous amount of plot armor, so. Like when Chapel and Spock are fighting that Gorn, you're like, well, that you know, they're not in any danger right now. <laughs> um, but other people who don't have plot armor, in some ways, I'm just sort of waiting for them all to die. Like, I'm like, is Ortega's gonna die? Patel, like, well, I, I
3: guess, I, I,
0: yeah.
1: So that's that's your firm prediction, though, is that she's gonna she gonna be dead by the time Kirk takes command of the Enterprise. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. See, I don't <laughs> think it's that foregone of a conclusion. I just like.
0: I mean, maybe she and maybe she'll live, and she and Pike will break up.
3: I think if she were important, we would have seen her in the cage.
1: Right. I, I, look, I don't think that that's an unfair thing to say, but at the same time, too, I also just feel like. Uh, well, I mean, Discovery was a prequel to the to the original series, and they just displaced that whole ship and put it somewhere else. I mean, yeah, I don't that, think that it's gonna be that drastic.
3: That, that's crate thirty-three. That's a whole different crate.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I honestly, like my sense, and maybe this is gonna be wrong, you know, we'll we'll reconvene in three years or whenever the hell season three comes back. But uh I feel like if they were going to gonna kill the character, they would have done it in this episode as opposed to... Because the source of suspense for the end of the episode does not come from Captain Patel necessarily.
3: Well, let me put it to you this way. She's not in the cage. So either Christopher Pike is... He didn't care about her that much because he does not think about her in this heightened moment that he has of his entire life. Or, uh, you know, they break up really badly. Or she dies. she Or she marries a Gorn.
1: maybe uh maybe she goes off with sam kirk and yeah no no that's that's, they die that doesn't work either yeah they're Uh, dead yeah poor sam um spoiler alert for a 50 year old show
0: you can spoil to (laughs) you i'll I'll allow it
1: (laughs) look i'm gonna be fascinated to to talk with you guys again whenever we do find out what what her fate is because i don't know i just have a sense that they're not going to end up killing her. I feel like maybe there's potentially more value for stories featuring pike while strange new worlds is going on. If she were still alive and maybe they're just not romantically involved anymore. Maybe we'll see, but, uh, we'll mark it down here, August 14th, 2023 with the captain Patel prediction. Um, well, let's go to our next point, because we got a pretty uh, a pretty fun little occurrence here. The earliest canonical appearance. This is Lieutenant Commander Scott, Chief Engineering Officer of the USS Enterprise. I was not expecting this, and unfortunately, I got spoiled on it before I watched the episode. Through no fault of my own, I was not seeking this information out. It was just... Presented to me like, hey, you like news stuff. You like Star Trek. Did you see this no name website that just decided to post a spoiler headline right from the jump? Um, but now we're up to four principal TOS characters that have appeared in Strange New Worlds. I guess maybe five? Yeah, five. If you want to count Nurse Chapel at least. But so if you're talking just like the core command crew of the Enterprise, then it's four. Um, so lay it on me. We've got uh, Martin Quinn. Who is the first actual Scotsman to play Scotty? Uh, which is kind of cool. Uh, but tell me what you think of of the conception of Montgomery Scott as we saw in this episode, uh, Kyle. Please.
2: Uh,
3: we finally have a true Scotsman. Before it was no true Scotsman.
1: <laughs> so, um,
3: I thought it was cool, and it, you know, you expect an engineer, a good one, to be like nerdy, and he was more of the Simon Pegg type than the. James Duane storming the beaches of Normandy, kind of, you know, actual human man. Yeah. Um, but I, I was totally not looking for it. And it was really surprising and sudden. And I thought that's cool. I was, it, it left a warm feeling in my human body.
1: Well, let's pull out an old, old word that it was a tasteful. Was that a taste t- tasteful? Movie?
3: It was subtle. Well, I love how Smuggy started out. Is like, oh yeah, of course I did this with these with a toaster and like two waters, you know.
1: <laughs> oh, Star Trek's own MacGyver. Uh, Cicero, you seem to have like an instantaneous response to seeing Scotty. At least if your text to me was any indication. Uh, what did you make of the employment of Montgomery Scott in this season finale?
2: yeah it was cool um, you know I mean, again this is this is one of the guys I know from that ship that I'm already watching that I know and uh, <laughs> these this is it's it's cool to to see uh, another one of those guys that I know so um, almost everybody's in place. And what it makes me wonder is how much longer, and this is, I guess, something that we'll talk about later on. How much longer this show can go? Um, as they're starting to put, you know, changing the board from checkers to chess. Right, they're putting more and more of those pieces on the board. Uh, how much longer can we watch this show where they're where they're like playing around with? with both sets of pieces on the board.
3: Um, I don't know if you guys listened to the seventh rule at all, another excellent little podcast, um, but the producer there, Fisher, said something to the effect of uh, that this could be a 10-year show and that mm-hmm. it's having a really weird start because COVID and then the strike, and it took four years to make 20 episodes, but that he thought you know, this, this show could go on for quite a long time. Cicero, you don't think so?
2: Ten, 10 seasons or 10 years. Uh, I don't wh- I don't know. So, yeah, I I so I have a hard I have a hard time believing that it could go 10 seasons um simply because th- so many of these people that we know to be aboard this ship, right? Like so many they're lining up so many of those ducks, right? We're having so many of those conversations about the cast and, you know, about this crew that has to deal with their future, right? All the things that we know from TOS and how the writers keep playing with that, playing in the margins of that cannon. Um Eventually they're going to have to, you know, they're going to have to shit or get off the pot when it comes to those plot points and they've played with, they've been aggressive with playing with those plot points and introducing these characters into this show. And I don't think that you can, you know, can you have seven more seasons with Scotty on the bridge without Kirk? Um, can we have seven more seasons where where uh, Captain Pike does all sorts of things? before he winds up in the beep boot machine? I don't think so. I well, don't yeah. think- I don't. We,
1: we did talk a little bit about the idea of Strange New Worlds potentially overlapping with TOS. Is that something you don't want to see?
0: Well,
2: I don't see how it could.
0: How many right? years out are we in the timeline from TOS? It's canonically Ooh. established
1: that the Kirk five-year mission started in 2265, and we are currently in 2259. Ooh.
2: Right.
3: So we got like right. six so years.
2: We, so we're six years away. Right. And and yes, right. Like it's T V, so we could make three seasons a year if we wanted to. Um, but but then, you know, but then you're packing in a lot, right? Like you're 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 filling in a lot of the blanks, and then what happens is, okay, yeah, sure. or uh, Uhura uh is she has been promoted from ensign to lieutenant in that in that time in that time frame um but also all of these guys have been through hell and back if we're if we're trying to pack in a lot more stuff into each of these into each of these seasons into the adventures and the livelihoods of of these characters by that by the by the time kirk gets gets to sit in the center seat most of these people are going to need a break. Like <laughs> it's it's going to be ridiculous. So I just I just can't see them trying to like front load the canon and the history of this ship and this crew that heavily hmm. um prior okay. to TOS.
1: According to uh to memory alpha, the menagerie the bookend sequences take place in twenty-two sixty-seven. So conceivably Kirk is in command of the Enterprise for two years prior to Captain Pike's accident. Okay. So I mean maybe there's some runway to do something well, with him as a fleet captain.
2: Is is the accident is the accident Does the accident happen right then and there, or is he 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 had been in the accident already for a while, right? Like, or he had been in the machine. It was described
1: that- as recent. I actually, it's funny. Um, oh, no. Dig yeah. this off of my shelf. Oh, look at that. Yeah, this oh. oh, nice.
0: Accessing his auxiliary materials. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <because, laughs> so, I mean,
1: this is the appropriate place to talk about it since it's a Star Trek show. I kept thinking about the restoration of T.O.S., because I remembered seeing like how complicated the original establishing shot of the Enterprise in the cage was to recreate in CG. And I was like, where the hell did I see that? Was it in one of the documentaries? No, it wasn't. I couldn't find it anywhere online. Eventually, I figured out it was in the Starfleet access segments of the Blu-ray release of season one for the Menagerie. Hmm. Where like interviews with uh, restoration production personnel, including the Okuda's uh and um and dave rossi were talking about just how complex it was to recreate that because in the cage the camera just goes into the top of the bridge and calls it good which was probably amazing in 1964 but the angle is wrong for the camera to actually come down it actually like instead of just shooting into the dome of the bridge like the original show did the remastered shot goes to the front of the bridge and then it descends to line up with the angles of where the characters are standing, which required them to create digital characters to sync up with the actual live action footage. If you have the Blu-ray of Star Trek, the original series season one, watch the Starfleet access portions of the menagerie because it is awesome. And they Mm -hmm. go into really great detail about how they construct those shots in particular. But so I was rewatching the menagerie and they describe the accident as having recently taken place but there's a lot of wiggle room with recent you know they could establish it more firmly however they want to recently
0: two years yeah maybe maybe two days right yeah
1: i mean they've been,
3: they've been pretty smart about how they've been writing these past two seasons these two seasons by the way i was recently reminded um they were, They did all these in the dark. They had no idea how the fans are going to react to these two seasons. Now yeah. they know. And they did this. And so, I don't know, man. They could probably do anything they want. In fact, we might yeah. get a Gorn musical number.
1: <laughs> or, you know, conjure up a, a nightmare for you, Kyle, a musical Lower Decks crossover, right? Oh, <laughs> thank God there's
3: so much whiskey in Kentucky.
1: <laughs> well, uh, Rachel... Um, Let's go back to Scotty. Okay. (laughs) Did you like the use of Scotty? I was
0: delighted and I was surprised at myself because very often I, when there are things like this, I roll my eyes and like, Oh, fan service. Gross. But I, I was, I was delighted to see him. It was a stressful moment and it was nice to see someone you recognized.
1: Well, you know, I feel like it serves a storytelling purpose, too, though, right? Because, yes, it's a stressful moment. And then, at least for me, my watching experience was as soon as Scotty comes into the frame, I'm like, oh, God, they're saved. You know, it like it, it gave a sense of reassuredness that I don't think I would have gotten from any other character in that moment.
3: I didn't know who he was until he opened his mouth. Like we saw him. I was like, OK, until yeah, he, I, mean, is- I
0: didn't. I didn't know who he was until he, he talked and then I was like, Oh sweet. And then, yeah.
1: And my I mean, being spoiled ahead spoiled of time. So you probably, know. yeah.
0: But I mean, it was just, it was just such a delight. Cause uh, I thought initially, I actually thought he was the, uh, the guy at the beginning that was talking to captain Patel. Oh yeah. Yeah. I thought it was that guy. And I was like, Oh, what's he doing? And then he talked and I'm like, wait a second.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. No, I mean, it's just like, how many stories have we been exposed to where the ingenuity of that guy saved everybody's life? You know, I mean, it was an immediately a reassuring presence to me. And, uh, and the performer. Yeah. Kyle, I, I totally agree. Like he is more in line with the Simon Pegg conception. He's also very young. The actor is 29 and Scotty is actually supposed to be the oldest member of the, of Kirk's command crew. Yeah. So, but he's actually like this performer is like 11 years younger than Paul Wesley. 29. Uh, still
3: got placenta uh, dripping off of him, right?
1: Yeah. And he's a lieutenant junior grade, so he's got a lot of promotions to get in the next few years. But um, no, it's just like it, it was. It was cool seeing Scotty again. I got another one of my friends back. I'm I'm pretty thrilled. If this show dovetails with TOS, I'm on board. Everyone that they've cast in these roles for someone who generally considers himself to be a TOS purist passing the smell test, at least for me. So I'll be interested to see what more this guy can do. And I actually really enjoyed how Pelia called him his greatest, her greatest student, but with the worst grades, you know, because she said hammer was fine, but Scotty, Ooh, that guy was good. He just didn't apply himself in my class. So I thought that was a nice little wrinkle, but, uh, Let's move along. I could talk about Scotty all night, and I don't want to do that because you guys won't like that. But let's move along with the plot. Following a strategy suggested by Uhura and Pelia, Spock installs rockets on the Cayuga's wreckage so they can crash it into the jammer. He kills an attacking Gorn with help from Chapel. The jammer is destroyed, allowing the Enterprise to beam up Pike, Scott, and Battelle, who is taken straight to medical. So we haven't really touched at this point on the portions inside the Cayuga saucer section, but what did you guys feel just about the way that those scenes worked in this story? Another judicious use of a, of a pre existing set just redressed, I assume to look all ransacked and destroyed. But um, what did you guys make of just the sequences that took place in the wreckage of the Cayuga? Rachel.
0: Um, I thought overall they were, Exciting. Um, I mentioned that, you know, with the plot armor of Ch- Nurse Chapel and uh, Spock, you you kind of there's not. It's hard to get just tension from just what's happening. So I appreciated that they had little moments that m- had interest in you know how it, like how are they going to defeat the Gorn? Not if they're going to defeat the gorn because we all know they are um so that was interesting um overall i had a lot of issues with the fact that they were like well people could be alive on there people could be alive on there and then they just sort of switched to like we're gonna ram it into the planet (laughs) (laughs) and that really bothered me because i was like well like if if Nurse Chapel's alive, then are there other people alive on there? Like maybe we shouldn't be ramming this. I uh, it just made me cringe a little bit. Um, so maybe the overall choice of how it was written in the episode bothered me a little bit, but the sequences themselves I thought were good. Okay, all
1: right, well said, Cicero. What did you make of the scenes aboard the Cayuga? Uh,
2: yeah, James Cameron did it better um but um, but but i i mean i agree with rachel right like that that the fact that you've got this plot armor um really removed a lot of the um a lot of the tension and rachel is also right about the fact that like right, right like how is it possible um and if the if there is a giant pedantic criticism that i have with this show specifically it's that you never know how many people are on a ship because in one moment, the ships are absolutely deserted, yeah. and in another moment, you know it's it's a bazaar in in Delhi, right? Like you can't you can't get through there. Um, and and there is really no telling. Which is going to be at any, you know, it it really, the plot really serves how you know how populated the ship is going to be at any particular moment, and uh, you know, to Rachel's point, right? Like, why are we to believe that Chapel is the only person that didn't get away? Right, Chapel, this person who who. Who's got incredible survival skills? Has been through the war, right? Is is um, on the flagship of of the of the fleet, and has already shown and proven that she's a badass. She gets stranded, and nobody else, right? There's nobody else with with uh, less experience and qualifications that also wasn't on that ship. But if they were. Oh, well, you know, Spock's not in love with them. So they get to die on the ship. Um, <laughs> you know, we hardly knew ye. Um, we didn't know ye at all. Uh, but that's, but like, uh, but I mean, if if those are the complaints that I have, then it's, you know, it's fine. Um, sure. It's bad, but like, I'll get over it. <laughs> but
1: Kyle, what did you make of the scenes aboard the remains of the Cayuga? Uh, the
3: Cayuga and this whole section I probably had the most quibbles with, right? Rachel's correct. There were people alive on that ship, and we just murdered them. And I, I hate that. That leaves a bad taste in my mouth, because when everyone's victorious at the end of the second half of this in two years' time, um, it's going to be like a swell of music. They're going to be patting each other in the back in slow motion. And all I'm going to be thinking about is, like, you guys killed, like, 30 red shirts to get here, you know? <laughs> it's it's stuck out um in the plan which spock comes up with in the ready rip or whatever also sticks out because it smacks vaguely of racism he said something like no human can make these calculations spock we invented calculus
1: dude chill <laughs> we <can> math dude <laughs> chill out you know um yeah what is he an enterprise vulcan jeez jeez and
3: and and in that vein the border that the gorn communicate like stop short of the planet. I don't know if the Gorn realized this and they might not. They're a race of space iguanas, but planets move, you know, <laughs> it's going to cross that line one way or the other. Just throwing it out there at, for the race that invented calculus, we understand that. Um, and the, I guess the part that I didn't like also was when uh chapel and Spock were coming up out of the roof of the bridge and stopped moving uh, while the saucer kept moving because that's not how physics works.
0: I noted and that in my head as well. But they should have at least,
3: <laughs> yeah, they should have at least thrown this little jetpack animation sure. or something. Like, yeah. t-ts, t-ts, you know, I'm like, oh, done. They didn't do that. I think this particular chunk of the episode needed just another look at the at the script to tighten some things because it also nobody 300 years from now is going to know what a zombie movie is or or what Morse code is. So I'm just going to point that out.
1: Well, hey, you know, uh, Dr. Pulaski knew what a splint was.
3: Yeah, but she was born when splints were invented.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs>
3: and, and, and Pulaski, that was for all the shit you gave Data.
1: <laughs> it was a lot. Um, well, I wanted to move on to Chapel and Spock because they're unresolved again even though it looked like things were kind of left closed at the end of subspace rhapsody. It seems like there's a lot that remains unsaid by the end of this episode, but how is this relationship working for you guys at this stage and in context with the events, with the events of this one? Because I talked last week in our recap of subspace rhapsody about how, Oh, this is cool. The, the song is forcing sort of an emotional confrontation that pushes Spock closer to the guy that we know in TOS. And then this episode comes along and it kind of seems to walk some of that back. And I guess on the one hand, I'm pleased because that means that there's a little bit more runway to explore this. But on the other hand, you know, they're introducing Dr. Corby. Now we know that nurse chapel becomes involved with him. Uh, and, And this is arguably where, the continuity might become a little bit of a weakness in terms of the stories that they're aiming to tell. Um, but how does it come together for you guys? Uh, Kyle.
3: Um, I, I regret some of the things I sang at you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's fine. I like that there's more runway. I think it uh, makes sense dramatically. I mean, of course they both have feelings for each other when, they're being hunted by space iguanas on the bridge of a partly populated derelict ship. Makes sense. Totally makes sense.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, Cicero, what do you make of where we stand with uh, with Chapel and Spock at the end of this one?
2: Um, You know, listen, Chris, let me tell you something. Let me tell you how unrealistic this is because- Please do. I, I know that when I've broken up with every girlfriend that I've ever had, it was over as soon as we said it was over the first time (laughs) and we never backslid, never, not once, not ever. No. Um, So, so yeah, like this is like, it works, right? Like, Oh yeah. Hey, these two. um, Well, first off, first off, uh, let me go back to last week. The reason they broke up was the dumbest reason Ever right like I'm going to science super nerdy science camp over the summer <laughs> so we can't be together Um, whatever right so like the fact that they're backsliding because of that like stupid non answer answer for why they were apart in the first place makes total sense but like eh, you know again eventually uh, there's there's only wonder and speculation about when the thing is going to happen, right? Like, we know the crash is coming. It's just a matter of when that crash is like, oh, we're getting dangerously close to that curve. Is this when the crash is coming? Oh, no, we made it around. Oh, we're going straight into the wall. Is this <laughs> when the crash is? I don't know. But like, yeah, it's coming.
1: So you're, you're basically telling me that we're... Chapel and Spock are now is the 23rd century equivalent of you up.
2: Oh, right. Yeah. Hold on now. Hold
1: on.
3: The truth of the matter is, is that Chapel can't get enough of that VD. And I'm not talking about venereal disease.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the, Don't resist. The, it's only logic. Right, right. The, the chirping call.
1: Yeah. Oh, man. Oh. <laughs> oh. Rachel. Yeah. What do you make of where Chapel and Spock are at?
0: I mean I don't remember them breaking up in the musical episode. He was just singing about it. She
1: kind of oriented her whole song about like this I don't care too much about this relationship. I'm going to go see you. I
0: guess. She I-
1: said, you know you know who pointed this out to me too. Javi texted me who's rewatching season 1 right now mm-hmm. and she specifically says at different points, yeah, I, commitment isn't for me. Yep. Sure. So, anyway, I'm sorry. I
0: mean, what I thought was going to happen was that she would go on this three month, uh, internship type deal, and then fall in love with the Doctor Corby. Doctor Corby. I want to call him Doctor Brody for some reason. <laughs> um, with Doctor Brody, and um, that they that would kind of end it between her and Spock. And so, um, I'm glad that's still on the table because it makes a lot more sense than like. You know, I can't be with you because I'm going to summer camp. So, <laughs> summer
3: camp. space summer camp.
0: Space summer camp.
3: Space
1: science medicine summer camp.
3: Yeah, the the past year of archaeological medicine. I still have no idea what that means. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's like uh, it's like paleobotany, right? That's it's a, a field. field. <laughs> Ar- <laughs> archaeological medicine will become a field. I'm sure. Point, right? <laughs> we have to think fourth dimensionally. The
0: medicine of the past. I think so. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that part yeah.
1: doesn't confuse
3: me. It's the Pasteur of archaeological oh, yeah. medicine, like
0: Louis Pasteur of archaeology. Yeah, I'm
3: just like, did he make Why milk Louis safe to pasteur? drink?
0: Why not like an inventor of? I mean, I guess he was more of a discoverer than an inventor. I don't oh, know.
3: know. It was a line they made up in TOS to be like, cool. And now we're, yeah. now we're stuck with it.
1: <laughs> At least they didn't say like it's the Elon Musk of archaeological medicine or something, right? <sighs> that's
3: loaded. <laughs> that's, a, that's a loaded descriptor.
1: Let's move along. <laughs> so uh, the Gorn capture La'an, Mbenga, Ortegas, Sam Kirk, and the other survivors. Pike is forced to decide whether to follow orders and retreat or stay to rescue his captured crew to be continued. Um, I honestly wish I, that's what I had gotten spoiled on. I would have liked to have known ahead of time that they were going to leave us hanging for who knows how long, uh, because then maybe I could have measured my, uh, my emotional response a little bit more because that does have an added significance right now. Naturally, mm. uh, we do not know when this show is going to be coming back. And I've seen online this has garnered a lot of comparisons to the end of the first part of The Best of Both Worlds. I don't know if it reaches that level. I mean, that's a pretty big goal. It, like, maybe they intended that, and it's fine to shoot for that. But in terms of execution, First of all, they knew when their show was coming back, so they could build their anticipation appropriately. And second of all, it's just like, that is such a grandfathered in kind of experience for people who were watching TNG back in 1990. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I just don't know if this could have had the same emotional punch as that. Mm -mm. But um, what do you guys make of just the employment of a cliffhanger? And especially with a lot of the questions hanging over when the production of the show is going to be able to resume. I don't think that we can discuss this without addressing that very big reality uh, that's affecting the production schedule of this show. Um, but what did you make of the cliffhanger just as a device and also, hey, we don't know when the show's coming back. Uh, Cicero?
2: Alright, uh apologies for spoilers for everybody. I'm just gonna put that out there right now. Uh-oh. Uh I'm I'm tired of these damn cliffhangers this summer. Right? <laughs> I'm, I'm tired of these Monday to Friday cliffhangers um on <laughs> on my, you know, my Mickey Ficky uh eye, eyeballs. Um Fast and the Furious, watch that, stupid cliffhanger. Spider Man, stupid cliffhanger um uh, uh the world stupid cliffhanger <laughs> um and and now and now we've got Star Trek Strange New Worlds with a with a stupid cliffhanger um and you know for three of out of those four things uh the the writer strike and and you know and the, the and the SAG strike are really impacting the result when those resolutions are going to, to, uh, to happen. Um, now let's, I want to go on record and saying I am in full support of the writers and the actors. Um, they, they deserve, they deserve what they're what hopefully what they get and probably deserve a little bit more. Um, but having said that as a consumer, uh, it is it is going to be tough, um, especially since it's going to be tough, especially since I have no idea when it, when the next thing is going to ha- when the next thing is going to come, but also because Paramount plus or Paramount has gone out of their way to make me nervous about how long this content is actually going to be on the service. Um, so there's, there is really no telling, right? There's no guarantee that if two years from now, right? Let's, let's say this, the strike ends at the end of this year and they can start, everyone can start their productions and ramp ups. Um, you know, sometime in the, in the beginning parts of, 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 uh, next year and we get a show in 2025. Uh, who's to say that Paramount is going to say, you know what, it didn't make enough money, uh, or we're hemorrhaging too much money. We can't afford to bring it back. So we're just going to cancel it where it is. Uh, and, and, and you know what, we need that. We need that storage space for Love Island and, uh, and, you know, and they're they're gonna remove it, right? Like they've they've already established that precedent. I'm not saying that it is going to happen, but it's not a it's not an impossibility that they do that with this show or any other show on the service.
1: How did that affect because I'm sure you were thinking about that anyway, in the moment when you saw that to be continued, how did that affect your enjoyment of that?
2: Uh I mean it didn't affect my enjoyment of it except for the fact that like yeah shazbot right like it's just it's gone it's over now um and I don't know when it's going to be resolved there was a show that watched, there was a show that I watched um back in the early aughts that was based on Robert Heinlein's Starship Troopers Called Roughnecks, the Chronicles of the Starship Troopers, or something like that. It was a, it was one of the very first computer animated cartoons. And and they had broken up the season. They had done a bunch of episodes where they were going to different planets, and there was this whole big controversy or this whole big narrative arc that they were going on that the uh the bugs had mimicked humans and were invading Earth. And there was a mothership. There was a brain bug on its way to Earth. And the, the final battle was going to take place on Earth. So the next season was going to be the roughnecks. Instead of being on all these alien planets, being on Earth fighting for, you know, the species. And, and it was really compelling. And we didn't get a second season. Right. So we were left with this cliffhanger of, you know, what was going on. The potential for that to be where we are here is is real. Um, so, I mean, that is definitely something that I've I've thought about. It it wouldn't be the first time. It sucks every time. It Wouldn't be the first time in in my you know uh, four decades of watching television that this that that has happened. But uh, you know, it it always hurts every time that it does. So, I'm hoping that that doesn't happen. But you got to be prepared for that to be the case. Sure. Yeah.
1: Rachel, what did you make of the cliffhanger? I assume it's not in the same league as the best of both worlds
0: for you. Um, no, I mean, I kind of like that, like in principle that they did it. It feels very like old school Star Trek. Like, I don't know. TNJ did a like, not just best of both worlds, but I just watched the times arrow and that's kind of a cliffhanger as well. Um, you know, not as, uh, Exciting as as Riker going fire, Fire. but yeah, yeah, um, I just overall mostly just felt dread. Um, (laughs) So you know, at one point in my life, I read that you know there's these neurons in your brain that are always keeping time, Um, and that like whenever you like note a time like in your head like these neurons will kind of like push up into your consciousness that like oh time's running out when you get close to it and you know i i do a lot of experiments for my work and so like so many times i'll you know i'll pop up before my timer and be like i gotta check my timer and i look and there's like 10 seconds left right and so the the little timer in my brain is as we're watching this it's counting down like um time's getting this episode should be done (laughs) like and it doesn't seem done and as it's going I'm getting more and more anxious and just this feeling of dread that "No, no 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 they're not doing this they're not doing this and then they did it and I was like ah and you know on the one hand yeah I was like that's so you know that's so classic Star Trek that's so good but then on the other hand I have the same feelings that Cicero had that like when is it coming back is it coming back where is it going to be? I don't know. Oh my God. (laughs) Uh, So that's overall my feelings on it are just, you know, I, I think that it it's an interesting choice that they made when they had the information that they had, but you know, in the fullness of time, it has become terrifying. Mm
1: -hmm. Sure. Well, I mean, it has been renewed. Well, but prodigy was renewed too.
0: That doesn't mean anything. Right. Yeah, I mean, Netflix right.
1: is it just takes these backsies.
0: Netflix renewed Glow for a final season, oh, and those then sons the pin- of pandemic oh,
1: happened, and yeah. it was too fun.
2: So that was a great show, uh, too. Was it ever? Oh man! Oh,
1: well, now I'm angry. <laughs> <laughs> Kyle, uh, what do you make of of the cliffhanger?
3: Um, it did not have the same emotional impact as the best of both worlds. It, uh. I mean, first of all, you have to have like Lizard Pike show up on the <laughs> screen and then say something in parcel tongue. Um, um but it did have the same, like, you know, Rachel's right. It had some of the same vibe as like a fifth or sixth season TNG, like, and I love that. And what I'm really looking forward to, like, I don't actually care what happens to the Gorn. I want to hear Major Barrett's vo- voice last time on Star Trek Strange New Worlds. And then we move into it and I'm like, now that, that would warm my heart. There
1: you go. Um,
3: uh i you know i was i was also worried in connection with the strikes paramount plus has 100 million subscribers and it's not making enough money the whole thing could fold and with the strikes going on like that that's part of the problem is all these streaming services aren't making any money chasing the netflix crown and like you know they could fold at any second and i'm like well i don't know it, it's a little bit worrying but i'm going to i'm going to try not to think about it paramounts <laughs> paramount's balanced me around a little bit too much and so like if they're going to cancel everything and move on like i've we've been here before it it won't be the worst thing you know
0: no they can just stop taking our money
3: (laughs) yes they can meanwhile season two of the bear is on so like i'll be okay but emotionally but i it wouldn't it just wouldn't surprise me like after what happened with prodigy like i i it's a little bit more hard to believe because strange in the world seems to be a big fan favorite, but like paramount's financially in a weird spot. So who knows what they'll do? Who knows how many tax write-offs they need?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I mean, like I get it. The, this was probably a decent choice. Like Rachel said for the time that they made the choice, but Holy hell. Uh, the level of uncertainty that is created because of this. I mean, best case scenario, if Paramount Plus goes down, they transition the Strange New Worlds cast to the feature department, right? So the 14th Star Trek film is actually a Strange New Worlds movie.
3: I think those are all under the same roof now. Yeah, Um, they are. So if it folds, it folds. What will happen is they'll sell it to Disney, and then Disney will continue it. Because Disney's the only one with any money, and even yeah. they are pulling back right now. So I'm like, even even they could be sold. Like, there's re-
0: Netflix has money. Yeah.
3: Well, they're they've lost a, a, a crap ton of sub, sub, subscribers this last quarter.
2: No one has money except for Tesla. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I, I thought Tesla I read an, an article money. that Netflix uh, like had positive cash flow or something that they were. Their investors are at least very happy, and that Netflix was considering there was like chatter that Netflix was going to try and basically put everybody else out of business by signing like a, some sort of a, interim agreement with Ooh. SAG and WGA. Trying to that's like the end game of
1: like Netflix forges a deal first.
0: Yeah. Like, oh, they of course. Do what?
1: Dark
3: Horse, man, that'd be, that'd be wildly surprising. Like. Wow.
0: Yeah, I didn't, like, look, it sounds a little bit far-fetched to me, seeing as how, like, I've also heard that Netflix is, like, the holdout, like, they don't want to negotiate at all, but then I read this article that, like, if they wanted to, like, they could sign an, an agreement for... With the um, with the unions that they can afford, but no other streaming services can afford and basically put them all out of business. But yeah. I don't know.
2: I mean, now that sounds- I'm
0: saying it out loud and not reading it on paper, uh, it sounds ridiculous. Uh, well, it well, sounds plausible <laughs>
1: to me. Netflix does have a lot of money. One of the reasons that we even got Discovery was because Netflix helped co-finance. It. Mm-hmm. So and and that's what gave birth to the the current era of the franchise that we're enjoying. I mean, look, it sucks to have to have this conversation at all. I mean, by any con- any normal conceivable metric outside of subscriptions to a streaming service that not many people seem to have. Uh this is a successful show. Like this is a ludicrously successful show. Yeah, Nielsen Nils- top 10, right?
0: Yeah, it would do really well on regular TV. I feel like. Yeah, I I
1: don't it, know. I mean, the last time Star Trek broadcast new on regular TV, I think was for the Vulcan Hello for the first episode for the two parter of Discovery.
3: Are they still broadcasting and it in Canada?
1: I ever since Paramount Plus jumped into Canada, I don't think so. Okay. But don't okay. quote me on that. Yeah. Um, but my perception is that Star Trek has moved over to Paramount Plus up there as well. But, um, I mean, it's just like this show has, for a lot of people, single-handedly justified new Star Trek stories being told in the first place. Died-in-the-wool fans who may have hated Discovery, uh, or even Picard, seem to be coming aboard for Strange New Worlds. This, now that Discovery is on its way out, Strange New Worlds, in my estimation, is the standard bearer of the franchise. Mm. So, uh, don't kill your flagship um please <laughs> it's yeah. pretty much yeah. all I've got um but no it's disappointing that this is even on the radar but they also telegraph to us that they don't care because of what they did to prodigy so
0: i mean i saw an article in food and wine analyzing uh the cookware that captain pike uses in his kitchen so there's some <laughs> cultural impact here
1: <laughs> <laughs> We, we we didn't hear about the teapots that Captain Picard had.
0: <laughs> no,
1: that's that's funny. Well, we've we've reached the end here. Um, let's jump over into our our last little fun time before we dismiss. It's pedantic continuity time. So the first thing I want to bring up is a misconception I had that has bugged me for like the last five or six days. So the Cayuga is a Constitution-class ship (coughs) with the registry NCC-1557. And my impression for the longest time was that the first Constitution-class ship was the USS Constitution with a registry of NCC-1700 so i've been like racking my brain like what the hell how can the cayuga be one five five seven if they didn't even get to constitution until 1700 but then you know it went completely out the window because of uh, of the uss constellation that appeared in the original series as a cost-cutting measure they took a model of the enterprise and just rearrange the registry number so that the USS Constellation was NCC 1017. And I looked a little bit deeper. It's never been established canonically, firmly, that the Constitution was 1700. So there's a little pedantic continuity thing that has driven me up a fucking wall for the past five days and this, it wasn't even anything. <laughs> These are the things we need to focus on. This, this is what I've been focusing on in between doing other things. It's just like, so That's a, it's just a fun little aside of something that really should not have bothered me as much as it did. Uh, there's no rules for this. I like, too, that Strange New Worlds has kind of just thrown out random star dates. Like, oh, this, this doesn't mean anything. Here, we're at 1312, then we're at 242 and it's just like... They, the, the, the TOS's star dates didn't make sense, so they're just continuing it. There's some other metric. We don't know how it works, so let's just roll it. It's like, with like it.
0: not base 10, it's something else. Like no, no.
1: <laughs> it, it wasn't like like they figured it out by TNG and, yeah. and were consistent from that point on. But TOS and this whole time for those old scientists, no, 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 no. no. But anyway, um, Montgomery Scott makes his first, his earliest canonical appearance in the Prime timeline. Martin Quinn is the first actor of Scottish descent to play the future chief engineer of the Enterprise. Scotty was born in 2222, so he is around 37 by the time of this episode in 2259. And mm-hmm. we talked about this a little bit. He was often characterized as the oldest member of the command crew during Kirk's five year mission. Martin Quinn is 29, Paul Wesley is 41. Ethan Peck is 37 and Celia Rose Gooding is 23. So Celia is very much in line with where she's supposed to be age wise. The other characters, maybe not so much, maybe Spock, but all things considered is just kind of a fun little detail. Uh, The Gorn hegemony symbol originated in of all places, the Starfleet Academy video game Hmm. and was first used in Canon in the Star Trek prodigy episode masquerade. The name of the governing body itself, the Gorn Hegemony, was established in Enterprise's season four episode Bound featuring the Orions. So nice little uh, factoid. And also of of, uh, Montgomery Scott's 11 known ship postings, the USS Stardiver is the first canonically named Starfleet ship that Scotty has served on. Uh, the other two being the Enterprise and the Enterprise A. So there's eight other ships that he has served on. We don't know what they are, but we know one more. We know the Star Diver after this episode. But that's pretty much it. Um, it's Picture wrap on Strange New World Season 2. Hopefully not picture wrap on the entire series. Uh, I loved this season. I thought this season was rather exceptional. I know that there were some episodes that were hit or miss for some people, but Uh, it took some big swings and I really admire that. And it also just stayed true to the ethos of the franchise and the, this era of the franchise as a 23rd century kid. I have been adoring this show every minute it's been on the air. Uh, You guys have any brief final thoughts on strange new world season two before we dismiss Cicero. Do you have a a short review of the season before we inevitably dive deeper into it in the future?
2: Every episode was one of my children. I can't pick a favorite. (laughs) Uh, So, uh, yeah, it was, you know, there should be more Star Trek that's episodic. I don't know if anyone's tried that before, but Strange New Worlds was really onto something. Mm -hmm. Episodic Star Trek is kind of where it's at.
1: Yeah, seems that way. Uh, Rachel, final thoughts on Strange New Worlds Season 2?
0: It was good. I just hope it comes back.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You and me both. Uh, Kyle, the last word then on Strange New World Season 2. Uh,
3: it, they definitely took swings, even in directions that I personally didn't like. Uh, but it it was well executed. And mm-hmm. it looked like fun while they are doing it. So like, I think this might be the best incarnation of Trek uh, we've had in the 21st century. And um, I, I can't imagine... Now that they have feedback, when season three returns, if it does return, they'll be armed with that feedback. And I think it's going to be, I think they're going to hit a stride, you know, like the way TNG hit season three and suddenly it was like breathing. We're already having, we already have a show that's breathing. What is it going to be like now? I can't wait.
1: Yeah, well said. Well, uh, we will um, most likely get together again to discuss season two in full. I think that that would be a prudent use of our time on this show. And um, we also do, as I've long said, uh, a debriefing of the season one finale of Strange New Worlds. We're well behind on that, but we'll get together and maybe do like a dual discussion of balance of terror and the, uh, and and the final episode of season one of strange new worlds. And then, you know, just keep your eyes on our feed. We'll, we'll uh, aim to bring you some other good discussions for this franchise that we all love. We've sort of batted around the idea of doing commentaries for the films. Uh, If that's something that you'd be interested in hearing from this crew, then by all means, please uh, let us know. I think that that would be a lot of fun. Um, and you know, if there's anything else in in the realm of the Star Trek universe, multiverse that you want to talk about with us, then reach out. Let us know what you want to hear about, and uh, and maybe we can make it happen. But as for right now, um, Kyle, thanks again for joining us. Any other wisdom you'd care to impart, or updates you'd care to leave us with? Are you maybe gonna do? sort of what you did for Picard season three and get some people together to talk about this.
3: I, I thought about it actually, and it sounds fun, but uh, I, I'm, I'm going to have to think about that pretty hard because we're a video essay channel. And if I keep doing these conversation pieces, then we'll, <laughs> you know, but I, but I, in my heart, I want to um, sure. and wisdom. You learn more from your failures than your successes.
1: Perfect. Hey, yeah. the greatest teacher failure is. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. All right, well, uh, that is going to do it for episode number 105 of Discovery Debrief. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please like and follow us on our social media channels. If you'd be so kind, we'd also appreciate it if you wrote a review for the show wherever you found it. It only takes a minute. And let us know if you wrote one, and we'll be happy to read your review on the air when it's posted. If you have any questions, you can follow the show on uh, Twitter at Debrief. We might be coming to Thread soon. I haven't decided yet. And feel free to send us questions through that platform or by emailing us at hailingfrequencies at discoverydebrief.com. Please be sure to set your courses for this feed for future episodes and be sure to join us next time as we discuss some other adventure in the fabled legacy of the name Enterprise. As always though, until we meet again, please go boldly, my friends.